Hello and welcome to Peace Lab. I'm your host, Jason Boone of the Peace and Justice Support Network. I am normally joined by Hannah Heinziger, Executive Director of The Mennonite. Uh, Hannah's on vacation this week, well-deserved, after some great coverage The Mennonite did of convention and some other things. So I uh, hope Hannah's enjoying her vacation. She does regret that she's not here to have the conversation that we're about to. Uh, Megan Good is someone we want, have wanted to have on Peace Lab for a while, and we're really glad that it worked out. Um, a little preface to the conversation before we jump in here. I'll say I got to know Megan a couple years ago, and I forget what the you know, sort of what facilitated it, but I, the conversation that we've been having on and off is how do we talk about our beliefs? How do we talk about being a pacifist? How do we, especially being a pacifist who follows Jesus, um, how do we articulate this to people who are in other Christian faith traditions or no faith tradition or, or what have you? And so that's something that a thread that we've picked up on you know, quite a few times. And it just occurred to me that, you know, we're talking about evangelism. And uh, maybe that's just not the word that I use or, or some other folks use, but that's what we're talking about. So today, uh, what I wanted to do was, was talk to Megan about, about evangelism, especially for us as peacemakers and as followers of Jesus and even as, as Mennonites and to get very particular. What, what does it mean for us? How do we approach evangelism? What does it look like on a congregational level? So that's the conversation we're going to have. I'm grateful that we can have it today and want to welcome Megan Good and say uh, thanks for taking your time here. It's good to see you again, Megan. It's great to be here and have this conversation. And uh, you're coming to us uh, from Trinity Mennonite Church in Phoenix, Arizona, where you are the teaching pastor. I think that's that's all accurate. That's right. That's good. Any other bits of bio that uh, that you want to put out there for folks who may not be familiar with you? Yeah. Well, I'm currently in the process of writing a doctoral dissertation on the nature of biblical authority, and I'm also writing a book for Herald Press on Anabaptist hermeneutics that'll be coming out in 2019. Oh, I didn't know that. That's great to hear then. Okay. We'll be looking for those. Well, as I was, you know, as I just said, we've had this conversation sort of on and off, you know, starts and stops and talking about evangelism and or how we talk about our beliefs or our faith system. You know, there's so many ways people want to frame these things. And but that's always important, but it seems like it's especially important now for us as Mennonites and Anabaptists, because it just seems like there's a very high interest in Anabaptist theology, and it's been that way for a couple of years. You know, we find a lot of people now who they'll self-describe themselves as neo-Anabaptists, or we'll kind of put that label on people. Um, there's probably more folks who don't use that label, but they start showing up to Mennonite churches, uh, and they have interest in in the beliefs. That's sort of the the preposition we're starting from, but I don't know is, do you think that's the case from what you observe, I guess, in the larger world, but then also in your own context in Phoenix, is there an interest or maybe an elevated hunger for Anabaptist beliefs these, these days? Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I just find the level of kind of interest and engagement remarkable right now. Um, I was educated at three different non-Anabaptist schools. And uh, one of the things that really surprised me is when I would, I would own being an Anabaptist there, how many people were desperate to talk to me about what they'd heard about Anabaptism and what it might sort of infuse into their own faith traditions. Uh, I tell people a lot that Mennonites at, at non-Anabaptist schools are kind of like unicorns. Everybody's heard about them, but most people haven't met one. <laughs> So we're finding at Trinity right now, it, it seems like it's a rare week where we don't have someone walk in our door who is seeking a new vision of faith. And, you know, some of that we've seen in response to the national election last year. 
Um, some people have talked to us about just a growing sense of unease that the gospel their church is talking about doesn't show a lot of concern for the world. Um, some of them have heard people like Greg Boyd and just kind of been blown off their feet by this sort of alternative narrative of, of how Jesus and his ministry can be understood. Uh, our new membership class this spring, two-thirds of, of the people attending that class are having their first Anabaptist experience here. Okay. Um, so it's just really, it's an exciting time to be an Anabaptist in the wider church. Um, I, I think there's never been a, a better moment for a conversation. It's so great to hear because I mean, we just have to be honest about our situation where we are. There's so much, there's a lot of tension in our denomination over different things, and we don't know what the future holds. You know, for us specifically as as a denomination, um, but God's always at work, and I think that this is another a dimension of that that maybe we don't always see or can't always appreciate enough. But that's that's the kind of thing that I think gives us hope to to keep going on. So what happens there at Trinity then? Is so you have all these different sort of push points that get people excited about Anabaptism or they've heard about Mennonites um, and they'll just sort of show up out of the blue and you got, you know, you got some new faces in the crowd or, or and, and they want to blend in or are they coming and saying, Hey, uh, I need to talk to a pastor. I have some questions about, uh, about Mennonites. Well, what is it? Uh, is, is there a sort of a typical way that people start to dip their toe in at Trinity at least? Yeah. Well, I kind of think of it as a pastor as having two different groups. Um, we have some people who are coming in who have often done social media or internet searches about Anabaptism and have, have flagged our congregation. Um, you know, we, we actually uh, do things technologically, so we pop up when they're searching in our area. And so those people, when they come in, are usually highly energized and ready to learn. Um, they, want, they want classes, they want information, they want to have conversations. Um, and then we, ha we have another group that sort of stumble in, maybe relationally or some other connection, and these are the people who are not yet as, as exposed to Anabaptism or as persuaded, um, but are often here because they're intrigued. Um, so those people are not as likely to sort of talk early, but they're kind of sitting back listening to the sermons and, and processing um, slowly, how is this vision of faith different from what I've heard of Christianity in the past? Um, and we find with those, it may take six or nine months before you hear a word out of them. Right. Um, but, but they're sort of taking the time to internally process uh, what their questions are. Right, right. I guess I, and other folks who've been doing reading or whatnot, they already sort of have them ready to go. Maybe they, they know what they, what they want to ask. Yeah. I, I want to get to that maybe more and, and talk about, you know, some of the specific questions people have and, and maybe some possible responses that you give that's a, that we can all maybe uh, take some lessons on. But I guess you know, even before that, just this, this very idea of, um, evangelism in, in broad terms, but thinking about new people coming into the church and how do we respond to this increased uh, appreciation for our beliefs? I think a core question here is, is this a good thing for us? And let me bracket that, I guess, maybe. There is a fear sometimes that when churches start to attract new people, that, there's, that there always has to be some sort of compromise involved. And, that, uh, and I think this is for anything. It's almost a human impulse to think that, you know, when you start to reach maybe a mass market that you're going to water down some things. And it's, you know, for me, like if I go see a, a, a band in cat's cradle, shout out Carborough, North Carolina, uh, and I see them and nobody else knows about them. And, and I really like them. And I say, you know, this is a great band. And then if they start to grow and five years later, they're very popular. Maybe I think, ah, oh, you know, they're good, but they're not as good as when I saw them when they were really small and there are only three people in the audience. Um, so I think there's always that, that question there. So for us, I mean, as, as Mennonites, and then thinking from you as a pastor, though, is this a good thing? I mean, we've got this interest, and people are starting to do it. 
you know, on the whole, is this a positive development for us as a church? I hear a lot of fear from Mennonites around this subject. And one of the things I think is important for us to understand as Anabaptists is the, the beauty of this moment for us is there are plenty of churches out there that are watered down. That's not what people are looking for when they're drawn to us to begin with. The, the people I find who are being drawn to Anabaptism are looking for a more radical vision of faith. Um, they're, they're deeply invested. They're passionate. Um, and so, so watering down is actually counter, counter to the pull that's drawing people there to begin with. So I, I do think it takes, if you were a church sort of looking to connect with people, it, it takes real leadership and a, a strong sense of, you know, what are you about? Like, what, what is this core vision that you're holding? Um, so, so much like the musician analogy you gave, like, what is your sound? <laughs> like, what, what is the story we're telling? Uh, but as you as a church hold that firmly and know what it is and know what story you're telling... I think the influx of new people and the, the attraction of new actually, in my experience, help longtime Anabaptists become more convicted and passionate about what they thought to begin with. Right. Because often when we're not seeing that flow of people come in, you can get to a point where people are showing up to church because they've always been there. <laughs> and there's maybe an assumption of, of peace as something people believe, but you begin to forget why or how that's different or why it matters. And we're finding here our longtime Mennonites are more curious about articulating their beliefs and understanding it as they're asked questions and see this kind of enthusiasm from people who are coming in. Right. Well, see, that's that's interesting, too. You know, my own path, I, I read some books, and, and I called up the local Mennonite church, and I was lucky that Dwayne Beck is the pastor there, and he loves to talk about these questions and answer these things. But I, I've kind of found that, too, people love to, you have to ask, but then they love to talk about them, and then, you know, these conversations get going. But if you don't have to articulate it, it, it can just sort, you know, sort of grow into a thing that, well, we know because we know, and we never have to say it. You know, it's just sort of natural. Well, I'm curious, you talked about maybe you, you've uh, tweaked things there on your, your social media or your internet presence that make it easier for people to find you. Are, are there other ways that you try to, to think about the, the church being not just the folks who are there on Sunday morning, but the folks who aren't there, the folks who might be coming in a year? Are there ways that you try to make yourself readily available or easily accessible for those folks? Yeah, there are all sorts of ways we're working on that. I mean, I think the first step for those of us who are church leaders is just beginning to lead with a daily awareness, not just of, to use Jesus' words, not just of the sheep already in the flock, but the sheep that's not here. And that's the sheep that usually gets forgotten when we make decisions as churches and, and have conversations is not what does this say to the people already in the pew, but like, what is the word needed for the people who the gospel has not yet spoken to? So, so there are different aspects of that for us. Um, I, I think on that question of the concern about watering down, one of the really tricky things about it is we don't want to in any way water down our faith or our convictions, uh, but also you cannot enter into significant relationships with new people without being flexible on your culture. And many Mennonites, I think that's where the friction begins to come in. It's not a question of whether we're teaching um, to follow the cross, but it is a question of where the cross is hanging. It's not a question of do we teach peace and justice. It's a question of what tune are we singing peace and justice to. So it's those kind of decisions, the cultural decisions, the packaging decisions, that we are working at being much more intentional about thinking not how do we compromise our beliefs, but how do, how do we clothe those beliefs um, in, in language and in presentation and in art uh, that, that make it compelling and credible to those who are coming sort of with different cultural assumptions. 
we're getting on, on some very uh, tricky ground here because this is, <laughs> for, from my experience with folks who were brought up in the Mennonite tradition, a lot of the, the cultural trappings and, and accoutrements are you know, almost as important as, as the theology in a lot of different ways. I don't know, how do you address that? I mean, is it, you know, if you're not singing four-part harmony, that's not a sin unto itself, but if four-part harmony has sort of been part of the vehicle that's you know, gotten this theology all the way from, you know, from, from Europe all those years ago and kept it alive and vibrant, how important is it to, to keep it around? Yeah, <laughs> that is a controversial question. <laughs> I mean, I think what I would say to people is this. I don't think there's one right answer. So I'm not telling people to disregard their history or their culture, to not value it, to not practice it. But I think one place we can learn a lesson is actually looking at the history of mission, um, even specifically within the Mennonite and Anabaptist tradition. Uh, there was a time not that long ago when we went into other people's countries and we tried to put them in black coats and plain dress. Um, and, and we've repented of that. We've realized what we were teaching in that was not Jesus. We were trying to make people like us. And that was incredibly destructive. And, and we understand now when we do sort of international mission work, you understand the, the culture first, and then you incarnate the gospel in their clothes. And so we understand that, I think, in a much deeper way on a foreign level, but we're in real denial about it in our own backyard. Right. And we tend to do what to our neighbors what we wouldn't do to people overseas. We refuse to learn their language, and we insist they adapt to us first. And for, for me as an Anabaptist, I think I hear the call, if I am the mature believer, if I am the one grounded in Christ, it's on me to sacrifice first, um, to, to sort of even lay down the things that I think are my rights or things that I hold dear as a person in order to, to learn the language and, and meet the need of the person who is in the more vulnerable position. And so I, I just think a, a good explication of our own theology there might lead us or should lead us to ask the question, if we are the strong in faith, uh, what are we willing to sacrifice uh, so that the, the new in faith can learn? Right, right. And so uh, a part of your job is, as church leadership uh, is, you know, being a bit of a sociologist, I guess, and, and where the culture you're in trying to figure out and being like Paul in many ways yeah, in a lot of church conversations, we're always talking about how, how do you reach millennials? You know, that's that's the brass ring of a lot of uh, church growth strategies, but you know, that's not the only demographic in the world. But I don't know, like, are, are there a couple of things you would point at that would say, you know what, if, if churches would consider maybe, you know, looking at, at a couple of these and and maybe contextualizing them more to where they are, that they're, big, that they're very helpful. And when people can see that there's a, a little bit of cultural connection on these things, they feel more comfortable coming through the doors, whereas maybe before they wouldn't? Yeah, there are two big categories. I think uh, <laughs> these may not be popular, but I think these are real. Um, and the two categories are technology and music. Uh, yeah, can you tell, tell us a little bit more? We've just done a, um, my colleague Scott and I did a listening tour of our congregation this winter and tried to sit down with as many people as possible in the church and ask, how did you get here? Why, why did you come and why do you stay? And one of the things we learned, particularly from our newer and younger people, is um, almost all of them had some kind of engagement with us technologically before they came in the door. Gotcha. And people would tell us, like, we would look at your website, we would look at what you're doing in technology and make a decision. Do you, do you care enough about us, uh, about the culture to, to sort of actively seek to engage? And, and we wouldn't have come if we didn't see evidence that you were trying to sort of speak to us where we were. Right. So I think that was kind of a sobering realization for us because we're working on this, but I wouldn't say we do it fantastically either. Right. <laughs> but 
but that that particularly for people of non-Mennonite background who are interested in the beliefs, that's the one of the threads they're looking for is like, can you speak in the space that I converse in? Mm. So I, I could give suggestions on ways to work at that, but I think it doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be huge, but if you have a, if you have a camera on your laptop, you can talk into your camera and make little videos. Um, you know, any, anything that shows, shows that you were making effort to sort of be in the marketplace of ideas. Okay. The difference. Um, and on the front of music, this one is so delicate and so tricky for Mennonites because this is something we value so highly. Um, but I think precisely because we value it, we are in a good position to understand why it matters to others as well. Um, that, that music, music is heart language. It's not head language. And, um, you know, much like when people learn a, a second language, they say it's always a different experience. Like my heart language, my original language, something always touches me deeper when I hear it. Like I just process language differently. And music is that way. So it's, it's possible to teach people new musical languages, but not to change heart language, or, or at least not very easily and not without decades of um, encounter. So, so part of when I ask the question of what kind of music are we doing in church, it's a question in part of hospitality. Like if I know my neighbor's heart language is different than mine, um, am I going to create sp space where their heart language is spoken and not just mine? To put that in the framework of hospitality, I think is different than making it a battle over what is good music or bad music. Um, music is not good or bad. It just resonates with different people differently. So how do we practice hospitality in that? And how do we, if, if we hold these sort of Anabaptist convictions dear that we see manifest in different forms of music. How do, how do we sort of package that in, in forms of music that might touch the core of different people differently? Well, that is interesting thought. So you have, you know, how many of our, how many churches on the hospitality commission uh, and then there's a worship commission and, and never shall the two meet, you know, in a way like all the planning goes on separately. So that, that's a, I think that's a helpful paradigm shift to think about. Well, you know, as we we're thinking about people who are coming you know, from other perspectives and, and outside and in the community, well, once they get in, what are some of the, are, are there, are, are there obstacles or are there, or I guess a better way to put it, what questions do they have uh, sort of about how our, our faith works? And because we're obviously, you know, we're a church of discipleship, you know, and so it's not just a matter of, you know, let, let's get people to come and, and that's good enough. We're, we're discipling each other uh, constantly down this road following following Jesus. So as they get in and they get comfortable and then they're starting to maybe know the landscape, are there still questions about theology or then even questions about you know, our own systems and ecclesiology and everything else that, um, that come up consistently that you find yourself answering either in, you know, in a, in a formal class or one-on-one, -on -one? What, what are some of the, the questions, the FAQs that, that you get about from someone who's new to Anabaptism? I feel like I have a lot of experience in talking to people who are Christian background, new to Anabaptism, and, and know what that sort of question is. I think one of the things we're experiencing now is more people who don't have Christian ba uh, background at all who are encountering Anabaptism. So that's an almost a distinct set of questions. Uh, but may maybe to go to the, for those who have some kind of a, an experience of Christianity before, um, right. uh, one of the questions... I hear a lot, and this is one of the reasons I'm doing my doctoral dissertation on the topic I am on scripture, is a lot of people who are coming into Anabaptism from evangelical traditions in particular are really concerned. One of the, the first questions they ask is how we read the Bible. Mm. And 
I think this is a huge attraction point for a lot of evangelicals to Anabaptism right now is they're, they're seeking a way to take the authority of the Bible seriously and non-dismissively, um, but also a way to sort of grapple with, with some of just the violence and the parts of scripture uh, that have been raising deep questions for them. So when I sit down with these people, often the kind of first direction the conversation goes is like, do, do Mennonites believe in the Bible? Do we believe in the authority of the Bible? And if so, how are we able to hold that belief together with, with our conviction God is not um, sort of the author of violence? Right. And so it, it's made me just extremely passionate, I guess, about the, the topic of, of reading scripture through the lens of Jesus as the full revelation of God. And I, I find that the more time I spend explaining that to people, it, it's just such an exciting kind of turning point for a lot of people in faith is to realize there is a way to engage the Bible that takes the whole thing seriously and as authority, uh, but changes the way that it's interpreted and applied. Right. And I, you mentioned Greg Boyd earlier. He, he just wrote like a 10,000 page book about this. I, I think I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but yeah. So, so it is a topic that I think you're right. I, I've identified that as a real turning point for folks. Yeah. Well, well, how about you, you mentioned maybe you know, a couple of different groups. So how about folks who didn't grow up in the church and, and don't have much experience in a church background at all? Do their questions differ? Yeah. Um, for that group, I think there's, there's just big questions. We're living in a cultural moment that the best term I could think about it, it's, it's becoming a strictly empirical culture. Like we, we have real difficulty talking about any kind of knowledge or any kind of truth that can be known except through the five senses and empirically. Right. Um, so for people who do not have church background, which is more and more of the, the people around us, I, I think some of the most fundamental beginning questions are, like, what do we think knowledge is? Like, how can, how can truth in the world be known? Uh, is, it, is it possible to have experiences that can't be quantified uh, so easily? Um, so, so that's usually the, the ground conversation there. Um, and then for both groups, there's obviously a huge question for Anabaptists around nonviolence. Um, right, yeah, and I wanted to get to that too, because that's, you know, in, in my position, usually uh, two or three times a year, I'll get a call from someone, and they just want to argue about pacifism. For, for no reason, they want to, every dystopic example they want to give you, you know, your family's been kidnapped and Hitler's been resurrected. It's, you know, it's, these conversations are so depressing, um, but, but they just sort of want to argue about it. Um, but usually it ends up in a good place where they say, well, you know what? Uh, I couldn't do what you guys do, but I'm glad someone's doing it. Sort of something like that. I don't know. Yes. Yeah, so, so what are your conversations like with folks about, about our peace ethic? Well, one of the things I've come to realize in seeing people change their mind about the peace ethic, um, particularly the last couple of years, I've had a few relationships with people who are ex-military who are encountering it for the first time with me. And um, you have to expect this is a long-term process because you're asking people to change very fundamental things about their vision of reality and how it works. Um, so I, I've come to expect there early on, there's going to be anger and tension and suspicion. Curiosity is triggered at a certain point and then wondering. And there's kind of this, this cycle of conversion for most people um, that, that they have to pass through over a, an extended period of time in conversation. But where I tend to start with people is rather than going straight at, at I think when I used to talk about peace, I would start with just why killing is bad. And I, I've changed my approach. I, I tend to start now with why healing is good. Oh. 
that that the the work of the church at its core what we're set apart for is not for what we don't do but what we do and and jesus ministry every summary of it you see is he teaches the kingdom and he heals and mennonites have talked a lot about teaching the kingdom but i think haven't always taken seriously the language of healing so i think actually the way mennonites often get on off track on evangelizing peace is we start with talking about what we think the government should or shouldn't do right Rome had a huge military in Jesus's day, but he didn't spend most of his time talking to Rome. He spent most of his time talking to people of faith. Um, so the question is, how, how does Jesus form a people of healing, a, a radical alternative to kind of the narrative that's unfolding around us? And how, how do we become healers who stand in gaps and bridge divides and put broken things together? And it's much easier for people to begin to buy into that role of healing than it is to start with just all killing is bad. <laughs> you know, if you can if you can get buy-in on the vision of healing, then you can begin to back your way into a conversation of, so what does healing look like in these different contexts that we participate in? And just play an armchair uh, anthropologist here. I mean, that, that's sort of the culture we live into. Everything is so fractured. I mean, uh, and everyone's looking for healing in different ways, but it's been consumerized. And I think that's what we fear as a church, too. We, we don't want to, to, to be a, a consumer place where people are coming just to, to get their sort of personal needs met. And that does feel, it feels like you, that lacks, lacks integrity. But on the other hand, if, if the culture, if you want to you know, put it in human form, is sort of searching for that, and then there are some things missing and, and we need wholeness, then it seems like that's the, the natural thing to say, well, this is where you can find wholeness. Yeah, I mean, I think it's another way of talking about very traditional Christian concepts of, you know, sin is a hard concept for modern people to wrap their heads around, but yeah. brokenness is a very familiar one. And I think those are not fundamentally different things. There are two ways of talking about one phenomenon. Like something, something in the world has fractured. It's come apart in us as individuals, as nations, um, in, in the earth itself. Like right. we, in drowning polar bears, like we see these pieces all over and, and that what the church has been called to be is, is the people of healing, the, the people of restoration um, who, who are sort of channels of the salvific power of God to put things back together. And um, I think that can be a really exciting vision for people as you begin to press into what that looks like. And, and you know, from I've read this from, and I, th I think it was Stanley Hauerwas, but it really helped me because I was like, I was almost like, well, I'm I'm not there, wherever there is. Like I, I'm not even as I had read things and, and thought I'd you know come to some kind of conclusions about the theology. I was like, but I'm not there. I can't I can't guarantee you that I won't try to pull a Clint Eastwood on someone if all these terrible things happen, and so therefore I can't participate. But this other, you know, reversing that and saying, you know what, no, you know, go ahead and say it and then be around a group of people who will help you figure out what it is. That's a radically different lifestyle than, than the other way around. I, I'm, does do you ever get into that part of it? I mean, as you know, join us on this as we find it together and don't feel like you have to come in already gussied up and, and the perfect peacemaker. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think there's very little sort of margin of productivity in having a fight with somebody who's being introduced to peace about whether they're going <laughs> to you know, right. that's an argument you're not going to win. <laughs> and, 
what you're inviting people into is like an alternative narrative of reality and saying like come and come and participate with us in this other kind of story and just see how it shapes you all over time you you don't have to buy it just try it <laughs> you know it's 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 the taste that begins to walk you into that longer that longer frame of your vision of reality being reshaped people are not converted very often instantly people are converted through time and experience right so you're looking for that first taste, that first step, that first bit of curiosity. You know, uh, taking this approach, I, um, are there some books or things that you would give to people? Because I know that sort of thinking about it from the other way, if you want to sort of answer all the uh, all the questions that come up, there are some, you know, there are plenty of books about that, like from Mennonite authors. But from, from the healing approach, I, I think about Jean-Paul uh, Jean Lederach and Reconcile, books like that. But are there other books that you would give to someone to say, maybe this is a vision of, of a healing kingdom that you can be a part of? that can help people make sense of it? <laughs> I would love to look into that. I actually don't, I have not read any books that take that particular healing approach. Um, I do typically recommend to people who are exploring this for the first time, two books, um, Greg Boyd's Myth of a Christian Nation and Brian Zahn's A Farewell to Mars. Um, and what I like about, I mean, Greg's really great introduction to people who are coming from an evangelical background. Uh, Brian's is more of a conversion story about how he changed positions. And I think, I think for people who are coming from other military experience or other kinds of experience, just hearing the kind of first person testimony of how, how my faith was radically reshaped, uh, it can be a really helpful exercise. And we appreciate you hearing about you know, your experience as a church leader and, and what's going on at Trinity. So for, for folks who are listening who may not be in that position and it's more, it's, you know, it's, it's my coworker and it's my neighbor and it's, maybe it's a family member. Um, you know, and I want to be able to talk more and articulate my beliefs, you know, a little bit better and, and, and make Anabaptist faith and pacifism, pacifism and, and other things maybe not so daunting. Are, are there any just sort of general things that you, you commend people sort of as, as a missional task? You know, th think about applying these things as you're, as you're talking about your own faith journey to other folks? Well, I guess a, a couple of things I would say. Um, it's really important, I think, as you're you're beginning to gain or seek the ability to better articulate your belief, to be reading people outside your tribe who disagree. Mm. Uh, because the, the sort of worst time to be hearing an argument against what you're saying or thinking is when you're in deep in the middle of a conversation with somebody and you're like, I've never thought about that. <laughs> right. Reading is a really great way to sort of hear hear kind of the questions and perspectives that other people are bringing to the table and, and set yourself up in a good way for knowing what the conversation is likely to be. Another big tip I think is just ditch jargon. Mm. Um, most of us who are in the church have been so saturated in religious language that we often don't even recognize when we're using it. Um, and that, I mean, that's another reason why I like healing language versus shalom or reconciliation, uh, because those terms are very theologically weighty and important. But for your average person who hasn't been exposed to Peace Church theology, those words are probably not in their normal vocabulary. So be, beginning with terms that are and analogies that are familiar and, and true to people's everyday life. Um, and, and also just practice your elevator speech. <laughs> like have... I get asked all the time, what do Anabaptists believe? <laughs> like, 
if it helps you like jot down three points that when people ask me about about my faith like what are what are the three things i'm going to emphasize and how am i going to say it well can we can we hear yours i mean i just met you at the library or whatnot i found out you're a pastor at a mennonite church well what's that well, usually I give people, people who are asking me cold, a really short origin story about the Anabaptism coming from a time when, when being a part of a nation was considered the same thing as being a part of a faith. And, and that part of what we stand for as a people is we understand being a Christian is not being born into a nation, or it's, it's not even going to a church. It's, cl- it's claiming allegiance to a new Lord. And... Um, depending on whether this person is, has religious background or not. Um, I, I tend to talk a lot about Anabaptism. Part of what makes us distinct is the belief that Jesus is the center of everything. Um, he, he is our image of who God is. He is our image of who humanity is meant to be. And one distinctive part of following him for us means confronting evil with love rather than violence, uh, because that's what he showed us about God and ourselves. Um, and then the third thing I usually talk about is becoming Christian and choosing Jesus is signing up for a new world that he's bringing into being. And we sign up with other people. Uh, we are citizens of a, a new kingdom, a new world reality. And that for Anabaptists, it's crucial to find a group to live that new world out together with. So th- those are basically extended ways of talking about a voluntary commitment to faith. Jesus is the center um, with nonviolence attached to that and community. Right. Yeah, the, the, the core beliefs, but yeah, you're right, you know, stripped of, of jargonese and, uh, and communicated simply. Yeah, so, so have your elevator speech, try not to be too jargony or technically, and, and make sure you're, when you say you're, you're reading or you're being exposed to other ideas, you're talking about uh, faith-wise, political-wise, uh, or everything that you can get your hands on. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking particularly about faith, but um, I often like to look at Mennonites' bookshelves when I go into their houses, and I find it really interesting how often everything on their shelf was by a Mennonite author. And, you know, I'm a Mennonite author, so by all means, support <laughs> <laughs> But at a certain point, it's it's so crucial, and particularly in a time when people are less strongly affiliated with tribes and are more likely to have touched down in multiple religious traditions to, to be able to talk to them about the views and things that they've encountered within other church settings. Um, so, so just, I mean, y- you might not like all of evangelical literature. You don't have to like it, uh, yeah. but make sure you're exposing yourself to things that are core sources of conversation for people coming from other streams. I, I, th- I, I gotta tell you, I do that for, for political purposes, you know, like I, I make myself read things that I know that, that, that sort of make my skin crawl just because I, I got to know where people are coming from. Cause if I can, then, then I see them as they just must be insane if they think that. So I think that that applies. I will say, I think on the, on some of the shelves, uh, I see a lot of Richard Rohr. I, I call him our unofficial spiritual director of Mennonite church USA. You noticed that. <laughs> That's a good, good inroads he's made. Hey, Megan, uh, thanks so much. This is such a deep topic, and I think this is why you and I have been sort of talking about it on and off for a couple of years, but but thanks for bringing it to, to Peace Lab. I think uh, yeah, people are going to have a lot to talk about. They're probably going to be emailing you on some of their uh, follow-up. Uh, I'm sure they'll have some questions, but um, I guess the last thing I would want to posit to you is we talked about this at the Future Church Summit a little bit, but and I think you've articulated it here already, but there's not tension between a church being a, a peace church and a church 
you know, being animated by an evangelical desire or zeal. It seems to me like that's sort of the, the best of both worlds, but, I, but I'm sure it's difficult to get there. Um, I, I don't know. Do you have any response? Is that the vision that you see for, for the Mennonite Church being able to combine both of those? Or, uh, or, or where do you see us moving as, as we move as, as a church locally and, and as a body and we get through the, you know, any uncertainties we're in? If we're really living out our call and our, and our faith and our mission, I think it's looking like those two things working together. I, I, I just love to have any feedback you have on, on those concepts coming together. I mean, that's certainly my vision. I, I think, I think it is a vision that we can't take for granted um, that the Mennonite church is struggling with and perhaps not everyone is equally comfortable with. Uh, because I, I think for, for some people I've talked to, it's easier to believe in peace than Jesus. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of groups out there, Christian, Unitarian, and otherwise, who, who are um, peace and justice pursuant, uh, but, but are not doing that out of a space of allegiance to Jesus specifically. Um, and certainly, I think that's, it's still worth doing, you know, if, if you were not a believer in Jesus, by all means, um, still seek peace. But, but Jesus matters. <laughs> um, my, my belief, the reason I'm a, a peacemaker and a pacifist is not because I think peace and justice always works strategically. Um, I think sometimes uh, when you seek peace in the short term, you get killed. Uh, but the reason that I believe in peace is I believe what Christians have seen is, is the arc of all, of all of cosmic history. And that when we seek peace, we are sharing in the triumph of the lamb that was slain. Um, and it, it's, it's because we have that conviction and because we know where history is going that we can risk things no one else can risk. Uh, because, because we know the land wins, um, we can be bold in ways we couldn't otherwise. And so I, I guess my, my hope, my prayer, my vision for the Mennonite Church is we really um, recover that vision of understanding it's not just Jesus taught peace. He makes it possible. Um, we, we are not... Peace is not just a strategy, it's a, it's a sharing in his victory. And um, that's, that's why it's worth doing to me, um, and that's why, that's why it's worth risking. I am not going to add anything to that. That was uh, well said. Hey, thanks for doing this, Megan. We look forward to talking to you again in the near future, hopefully. My pleasure. Great to be with you.